Welcome to Sublime Noise, a Patreon-exclusive film score review show. Welcome, everyone, to our inaugural episode of Sublime Noise, our film score review show. And this is a new limited series for our patrons only. We don't know how long the show is going to go on, but we have a lot of uh, great reviews in store. Uh, Patrick and I had been talking about this actually probably since you started with Perfect Organism like five years ago. I can't even believe that. Coming up on um, five years. But we started talking about scores and how important scores were. We've had a couple of episodes here and there about certainly the score for Alien 3, the score for Aliens, the score for Alien, um, Blade Runner, and we've had discussions about it all, quite a bit. And it felt right to launch a show for our patrons talking about at least for me, what I love about movies, not the most, but um, like for me, when I love a film, when I have passion for a film, it's also because the score is amazing. It's very rare that I love a film that doesn't have a great score. So I'm excited to talk about this with you. Yeah, me too. This is something very close to both of our hearts. It's something that we've addressed on our other shows, on the on the main shows quite a bit. And we always get all this feedback from people like, whoa, you got to do more score episodes. So we talked about doing this as a Patreon thing for quite a long time now. And, uh, and I'm glad that we're officially kind of kicking it off. And that we're kicking it off with one of the best scores of the last decade easily, in my opinion, tonight with Interstellar. I just think is so, is so great. But I guess, mm-hmm. you know, before we get into it, what's what's your relationship with film scores? Like looking back through your life. You know, I was thinking about that last night and this morning, like, what are some of my earliest memories? Because it wasn't like this, oh, I'm going to put on this score and this is, a, you know what I mean? It wasn't anything like pragmatic. It was very going to see Return of the Jedi in the theaters when I was 50. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, um, hearing Luke Skywalker's theme, hearing Luke, you know, Leia's theme, hearing the, the main theme um from Star Wars and having that play in my head as a kid, you know, and having it bring wonder and excitement to me. And then like watching Flight of the Navigator and remembering that music. And then as I got a little bit older, I remember one of the first scores I really wanted to hear because it was a movie I couldn't see, which was Alien 3. And I thought if I can't see the movie, I'd at least want to see the sc- hear the score. And I, there was some issue with me even hearing the score because there's a title called rape interesting uh, it's called pillage and rape something pillage and rape yeah. and they're like oh you know we we can't here's the cd but you can't look at the liner notes oh, re- wreckage wreckage and rape sorry not pillage. wreckage and rape yeah. yeah yeah but then that it was a very dark score but i wanted to be immersed in alien like I, if i can't see this movie i'm dying to see i need to at least be immersed in the audio world of it and then that I really feel like Alien 3 was the jumping point for me to Blade Runner, to other scores. But even before that, I had a really amazing relationship with music. Music had set me free. I remember being 14 or 15 when U2's Octune Baby came out. And of course, being raised in a very religious society uh, or whatever, they would like, if you if they weren't Christian, you couldn't listen to them. You had to submit your lyrics. So music was like this chocolate by midnight. You're in the moonlight and you're listening to something and you're doing something very taboo that you shouldn't do. And was music actually, was setting... That was the first name for this series is chocolate by moonlight. I'm glad we no, didn't a- end up going with it. But... <laughs> chocolate by moonlight. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but music had always been very... It was something that had really set me free. And I'd listened to a lot of dark music for a long, 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 long time. But a lot of it was scores. Like I remember listening to the score for Terminator 2 on repeat all the time. And people were 
worried about me. They would go to my parents and say, John and Mary, Jamie's listening to very dark music. Like, All we hear is well, dun, 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 coming out of his bedroom. Totally. And I listened to it over and over. And of course, even the score for Blade Runner is very dark. So, and then, but again, Blade Runner really kicked, when I finally, like Alien 3 was the beginning, but Blade Runner really kicked off this like, oh, wait a minute. This score is unlike anything else I'd ever heard before. And then it pushed me into buying soundtracks on my own. What about you? Yeah, film scores for me have, have always been very powerful as well. Music, obviously, in general, for me, going back to when I was a, a young child and sang in a choir for the first time when I was six, it's always been very central to my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first, just as as something that I did as a hobby and then as something I did professionally. And I started professionally in music when I was seven, actually, with the first choir I was ever wow. in. I was getting a paycheck. So it's been, you know, not just um, a love of mine, but it's been sort of a job for a long time uh, to this day in different ways. And composing for me in particular is something that came later. I was a singer for most of my life without doing that and also playing a lot of instruments and different orchestras and bands and things. Um, and then when I started composing, I, you know, Elliot Goldenthal's work for Alien 3 was so central to that process for me because it was the one that I just couldn't stop listening to. It was something that I just felt like it, it's, it spoke so so deeply to me as a fan of, of Alien, but also just as a fan of like pure art. And to this day, it's still my favorite soundtrack of all time. It's still the one I go back to the most, maybe, although it's it's heavy listening. So, you know, I don't put it on in the background, but when I'm really, li- when I want to listen to something, Golden Thal's Alien 3 score is just so, so central. But I actually, similarly to you, um, Star Wars for me and, and, and you know, many other works in, in that kind of 80s canon that, you know, uh, Oh my God, why can't I think of his fucking name right now? That's crazy. John Williams? John Williams. Yeah, I was thinking of Jerry Goldsmith. That John Williams and his contemporaries did. People like Jerry Goldsmith. You know, they, they, really, uh, they really stuck with me a lot when I was a kid and showed me this other emotional expanse that scoring can provide access to, which is it allows us to get into things that are sort of implicit on the screen and through this beautifully subjective medium of music, make it explicit in the heads of the people who are watching the film. And then, of course... What's great is that, you know, I mean, one of the one of the few things that that books do better than movies almost all the time is that they're because they're because you can't see them. They allow you to kind of tell the story to yourself. Music does that for me, you know, all the time. It allows me to tell a story to myself in my own head. So after I see the film, as I get to know the soundtrack better, I'm replaying not just the movie, but I'm replaying my experience of watching the movie and my subjective relationship with that makes it always more powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the soundtracks that stick with me the most are the ones that allow me to do that. The ones that don't feel quite as literal or as tied to specific moments in the movie, but are just these beautiful tapestries of sound that give me access to that world so that as I'm listening to it, I can kind of fall into the film again. Um, and yeah, and, and Hans Zimmer in particular, you know, as we're starting with this tonight, is somebody who's been behind so many of those great moments in my in my life. You know, I mean, what I'm, I still remember d- distinctly when The Dark Knight came out. You know, my my now wife and I we had just been together for like two weeks by that point. Like one of our first dates, our very first date was seeing the Edward Norton MCU Hulk movie, which was in theaters at the time. And then the Dark Knight came out right after that, and and you know Micah is this humongous Batman fan, and I'm I'm somewhat of a Batman fan too, so we were really excited to see it. And just listening to Nolan's score and then IMAX theater for that first time was like one of those watershed moments for me. And then we were playing it in the car all the time. We were just listening to it constantly, and him and James Newton Howard's score just it really uh, stuck with me quite a bit, and it cued me into this composer who I you know knew was a big deal and had been doing things since The Lion King, but I never knew what he really spoke 
to me personally until that movie. And then, of course, when Inception came out, that's another one of my absolute favorite, not only scores, but films, and it's still a score that I listen to all the time. So when Interstellar was announced, which came on the heels of Amazing Spider-Man 2, which to me has not, not only easily the best Spider-Man score, but is probably the most underrated of any Spider-Man movie. I actually specifically love that film, other than all the messiness around it. The emotional core of that film is so good for me. So anyway, that's all that saying. When Interstellar was announced and I knew that Zimmer was scoring it, I was like, fuck, this is going to be absolutely an incredible film. You know, we did a frame rate on Interstellar that uh, I was not a part of. Jamie, I, I have no memory of why that happened, but I, I had some conflict that night. But um, I, I, I just briefly on that note, Interstellar is a movie that I've seen, I think, only twice ever because it is really hard for me to watch it. It's like yes. really hard to watch. It, me too. Me too. It, um, and it's a movie that I haven't seen since being a parent for very specific reasons because it's, it's – I mean, even just thinking about it, it's like just giving me this huge stomachache because it's mm-hmm. so – so powerful. And of course, the genesis of this movie was was parenting and, and was this idea of, you know, and Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan and Nolan's wife went out one night and they were talking about their kids. And this idea of like, what if we could tell a story about this relationship between parents and children in a cosmic way? And that like led to the emotional core of the movie, which started with Zimmer's soundtrack because he was involved from the very beginning. So like that, that through line still when I listen to Interstellar, just emotionally just kills me every time and i feel like it is a movie that i hope people still talk about the way that they should be because i feel like it's sort of fallen out of like cultural i don't know it's people don't really talk about it that much and it's uh it's i a think it's hard for people to talk about honestly yeah, um some people will scoff at it or scoff at like oh yeah love will save us like dude you're not you're not understanding what's happening and i i don't like to say that because if you don't like something you don't like something but yeah i hear what you're saying like it's it's not an easy watch but and the score is emotionally fraught it's you know? devastating it's fucking devastating there are moments yes. in this soundtrack that I, I i like can't even like listen to it without crying because it's mm-hmm. so powerful Same, and it's me, me too over it's really overwhelming and and that's something that i want to you know get into a little bit tonight a lot of zimmer's scores from this time period are classified as being overwhelming you know from the time of like inception to dunkirk um to varying degrees of success, but the type of overwhelming that that Interstellar is to me is like the most ravishing cinema, cinematic. Like it is a it is poetry, and it is just it just knocks you back. You know, I just I just love the score. Yes, I would agree, and um, I I do a couple things I want to mention um, in terms of. Uh, that I completely glossed over when we were kind of introing this, but I have a very specific relationship with Zimmer. I actually am a really big fan of his, but I also want to make sure that I tell our listeners that I remember watching Vertigo when I was a kid and hearing the music of Bernard Herrmann and having it transport me in ways that I'd never been transported before. The whole opening to Vertigo, dun, 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 like it's just, and the entire score or um, The Man Who Knew Too Much, there's a whole piece that Bernard Herrmann wrote for The Man Who Knew Too Much to clash with the symbols at the time of this big moment in the film. And then hearing John Williams score for Jaws, who was very much informed earlier in his career by Bernard Herman. You can hear Bernard Herman earlier in John Williams' career. You don't hear it as much now. Um, I actually don't think John Williams is as good of a... He doesn't, uh, I don't think his scores are as good as they used to be, quite honestly. But that was also really informing me. But to Zimmer, the thin red line, that oh. score blew me away. It blew me away. And I felt like 
emotionally vulnerable listening to it. It's some of the most beautiful movements I've ever heard. I can listen to it um, apart from the movie. I don't think about the movie when I hear the score, which to me says that's a good score. Some scores I can listen to, when I listen to them, like for instance, I'll listen to the score for Lady Hawk, which is very 80s, very cheesy. I fucking hate that score so much. I love it, just because it's nostalgic, you know? Right, um, right. And there's a couple of really interesting moments in it where there's some Gregorian chant, um, and some, there's a couple of really, really interesting moments in there. But Zimmer really captured me, and I, when I remember hearing his music um, for The Thin Red Line, which was the big one that made me turn my head to him, I thought, okay, this man understands music in a way that's ephemeral, in a way that's moving you through time and space which then brings us to Interstellar. And I remember seeing Interstellar, I saw I think two or three times, maybe even four times in the theater. I loved it. I loved it. And my dad was, I remember my dad asking me like, why are you seeing this movie? I was like, I don't know, dad, something about it um, moves me. And then I remember buying the score right away and listening to my car. And I remember driving down this highway in Indiana and I was listening to it really loud because I listen to all my music in my car really loud and thinking about my grandmothers and thinking there's going to be a time in my life where they are not going to be here. And I had to turn off the music because I start crying. Now one of those grandmothers has passed and that was 2013, I think, right? When Interstellar came out. 2014. 2014. I still have another grandmother alive. I don't know how much longer she will be alive. She will be 93 if she makes it this year. But his score, the score for this is something I almost can't describe. It's something that's akin to Philip Glass, and I love Philip Glass, and I think we need to make mention of Philip Glass's almost participation in this. This music would not exist without Philip Glass, without Koyana Skatsi, which has a lot of similarities to what you hear in Interstellar. Oh, yeah. I don't know what your experience with Koyana Skatsi is, but... Oh, yeah. He was, well, not just with the organ, but with the type, the way that rhythm is treated and with the, you know, repetitive churning and, th- yeah, and the way that things are layered. Philip Glass, you know, is interesting because he kind of comes from you know, the the sort of music world that I'm coming from, which is like contemporary classical music, but mm-hmm. he's done a handful of these scores over the last four decades or so. And they're all he's and he's an incredible composer. So they they're they're really amazing. And and his his aesthetic is really well suited for the aesthetic of filmmaking and as is mm-hmm. Zimmer's, I think. And I think that's part of why he's taken from him so much. You know, another People complain sometimes about this sounding too much like Koyaanisqatsi. To me, it doesn't bother me at all because it's so high quality and it doesn't and it it goes in very different directions. And the moments that use the Katsi sort of themes are very emotionally powerful and they're really well mm-hmm. suited for that. So it feels you know it feels appropriate to me. But I, I definitely agree with you that it's borderline derivative of Philip Glass at times. But I think it's derivative in the best way possible, where Koyana Scotty, the score for that, does not sound like Interstellar. They use the same instrument to tell different stories. Um, and you can hear that these are related tracks, absolutely. And uh, to that point, you can hear moments from the score of Koyana Scotty in Zack Snyder's, what is it, um, The Watchmen, which I love how he used it in those. In, That's a in that great film. fucking movie. It is a great movie, and the use of score in that film is great. I think Zack Snyder has a really great ear for what works, juxtaposing picture and sound at any rate. Um, but Interstellar moves me in a way that Koyana Scotty does not. Um, there's a deeper emotional excavation happening, and the idea, like, for instance, in Interstellar, there's that moment where McConaughey and... Cooper. Um, and Cooper and what's... I almost called her Staline. What's her Murph. name? Um, 
No, uh, what's Anne Hathaway's character's name? Oh, I, I don't uh, remember. Anyway, uh, Brand Amelia Brand, Br- yeah, Doctor Brand. Brand. Yeah, they've been on the planet for a while. The other African American guy character has been up in the ship or up in the station waiting on them. They finally come back, and you know, Cooper has had messages from his children, um, and he's sitting there listening to and watching them and the music starts and it's like the music is taking you through a wormhole. That's the only way I can describe the score for Interstellar. It's taking you through time and space, literally for Cooper, but also for us on an emotional level. And there's his daughter, the same age as he am, saying, Dad, did you uh, did you leave us? Have you?" Uh, I can't even like, I have goosebumps even saying that right now. Like, because the worst thing for a child to feel abandoned by their parent um and that's and that's what's you know as someone who experienced abandonment by their parents at a very tender age where my parents left me in a lodge at 13 years old in missouri in the middle of nowhere essentially alone like those moments hit hit hard for me and the music is just some of the most beautiful devastating music i've ever heard yeah, there's this. There's something to be said for like pure cinema, you know, as a, as an aesthetic, but also as an experience. Mm-hmm. And Interstellar has a number of those moments. I think another one is Stay, the track Stay, which is playing yes. as he's driving through the field and the countdown is going, and it's like, oh my god, it's just so powerful. And and I, I agree with you. The, the reason why I think this movie works so well for us. I mean, there's many reasons, but one of them is because that sense of, of the bonds between people and how p- important they are, they do encompass the entire experienced universe of a human, right? So, like, while he might be on the other side of Saturn looking at this black hole and doing all these crazy things and looking for these inhabitable planets and bringing this Promethean experience to humanity, like, doing these gigantic things, at the end of the day, those are nowhere near as important to him as his daughter is, you know? And that, to me, I'm, I'm going to be fucking crying this entire episode. I'm going to try not to. <laughs> But okay. that, that experience is like, it's incredibly powerful because because at the end of the day, anybody who has a connection with somebody else would much rather have that connection than discover, you know, the future of humanity or something. And, mm-hmm. and, and that is a very powerful thing to realize. And that's at the heart of a lot of great science fiction. I mean, 2001 is another movie that comes to mind, obviously, quite a bit. In the mm-hmm. end, during the wormhole, the, the reason why that is so effective to us isn't the the effects, and it isn't just because it's so shocking. It's because of the emotional journey that he's on, and, be, and because of this idea of time passing uncontrollably, and like, what does that look like, and where do we go? And the way that science fiction allows us to unravel those questions is so, is so powerful. There's also, of course, just the base fear that every parent has that they're going to blink and their kids are going to be grown up all of a sudden, which is something that, you know, I deal with constantly. And it's something that I think Cooper, you know, the, the arc of his character is just so well suited for exploring that idea i actually do want to talk about stay in particular that that moment a little bit you know the the beginning of the soundtrack on like the the normal release of it starts with like dreaming of the crash and it starts with um Mm -hmm. you know uh cornfield chase and they're, they're they're amazing and they lay out some of the sort of the aesthetic foundations for this which i'll get to in a little bit but the but day one which to me is is like where things really start. Actually, I'll start with day one. So day one, I think, is the original piece of music that um, Zimmer wrote for Nolan. Because initially, I don't know, do you know about the story about how they started with this? I've seen all the behind the scenes stuff, but it's been a while. So That's okay. And our listeners might not. So, you know, they went out to dinner and uh, and down the road a few years later, after having done other collaborations together, Nolan was like, hey, you know, I'm really ruminating on this idea we talked about. Um, let me give you a letter. 
and I want you to just spend one day and write That's something right. write yes. something in response to this letter. And yes. the letter was about parenting. The, and the letter was this just very beautiful, simple statement that I can't remember exactly what it says, and I don't want to read it because I'll cry again. But it's something very you know elemental about being a parent. And so Zimmer wrote this track in response to it. And I think that that track was day one, which of course gives us the, the motivic core for a lot of the music that comes, right? It gives us that melody that sounds almost like plain chant, the da 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 da, with the, with the, the boom, 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 that beautiful sort of churning, ticking piano music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way that if you just listen to this thing, you know, if you can get it with like lossless audio, get the really good edition of the soundtrack, because this is a wonderful example of how masterfully Zimmer, and I think he had a team working with him too, the way that they are able to dovetail instruments together. So they just speak so beautifully. The orchestration of this track and the way it builds is just so gorgeous. And, uh, and I think day one for me, you know, it sets up what the movie is about, which is it looks like it's a huge story, but it's actually a very small story. And in its smallness, it's infinite. And it's a, day one speaks to that for me. I think Stay is a big one for me as well. Um, and I think there's the moments during the score. And I don't know. I mean, I, I like Day One Dark is actually a track that I first downloaded. I, f- I was like, how do it was when the score wasn't available yet. But I needed this moment in the film that's probably one of the most emotionally fraught moments in the film. The countdown in term- Yeah, well, when they're going back to the ship and they're trying to lock into the <laughs> ship. and crazy. Damon, yeah. It is. And, and then it's building. It's... Like, it's just, but I also feel like I've never, again, I'm going to repeat this. I'll probably repeat it again. I've never had music transport me almost physically out of my body through time like this score does. Um, There's something that, and also to let our listeners know, they use the oldest, I think, instrument or organ in human history to record this score. They went to Sweden or Denmark or it's over there somewhere and they used it to record this track. And there was something that they, during the making ofs that I watched, they thought that using this instrument would tap into something in ourselves that we could, and it was, it's really true. There's something about that organ that's like strumming, at least for me, something deep within my genetic memory. I don't, I can't even describe it more than that. There's something about, there's something, they tap into human genetic memory in this score. If you're really listening, if you're really open to it. Um, And even like, I know people who don't like Interstellar who think that the score is amazing. They think it's probably one of Zimmer's best ever. Yeah. I've never Um, heard, I've never heard anybody say anything bad about this score in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, Day One Dark was a big one for me. Um, and I think I, I don't experience this score track by track. I experience it all as one story. And I, I can, when I listen to it, I, I, I disassociate from the film and I associate my own life with it. Um, much like when I listen to Koyana Skatsi, I think about growing up in the 80s as a young child and being in a big city because a lot of Koyana Skatsi is that. Maybe we should do a, uh, a, a what is this called? Sublime, Sublime Noise. noise on um, Koyana Skatsi at some point. Um, but this movie really like 
or this music really, when I start listening to it, I, I think back to my earliest memories as a, as a human being on this planet. And then I go forward into my death. That's what I think about when I hear this music, like, and this long line in between and like my parents on that line and my grandmother who's, you know, grandmother's now one. Um, and where am I going to fit on this line? And I feel like this music is this turning of time. And I'm in this wheel. We're all in this wheel and we're turning. And where are we going to get off in this? We don't know. We're not really sure. But it's moving and we better we better love our family. We better love our children. We better love our parents or learn, you know, and forgive people. And like this music's teaching me all of that. You know? Yeah, in such a beautifully human way, and and that's why I I, I just adore this film so much. Um, going back to to stay for a moment, there's there's some stuff going on there that I think speaks instrumentally to what you're talking about. Um, one of them is this dominant pedal, so um, that stays throughout almost the entire track. That is one of the, the defining characteristics of this score. And for those who don't know what a pedal point is or a pedal note, it's when you have one note that basically just sustains through a number of other chord changes and it kind of keeps going all the way to the end. Sort of like a drone, but it, not necessarily a drone because it does eventually move. Um, in Stay, there's this very sustained C dominant pedal that's just running almost the entire time through. And the actual track is an F, so that C is the dominant of F. And it, and it, you know, if it had been an F pedal that was resolved the entire time, it would feel too too final. What we get instead is this dominant pedal point that doesn't actually resolve to the tonic at the end. So it feels like it's not necessarily continually unresolved because it's still in the same chord, but it keeps it feeling from it keeps it. Uh, elliptical as opposed to being a period at the end of a sentence. It's just this beautiful open-ended sound that is continually added to with organ and with all these other instruments that uh, comes out of these wispy wind noises that in the beginning, right, which we also see with Dreaming of the Crash at the beginning of the score, and we see quite a few times throughout this beautiful tapestry that he made of these wind sounds, these like chimes almost. And the and the score does that a lot. It takes these these uh, these you know these little evanescent, barely registering noises, and then it goes to these crashing, humongous you know statements. And I think part of what makes us feel so not only emotionally overwhelming but so infinite is that we get like the full scope and power of what you can produce with modern speaker systems, you know, literally your headphones, like we get the, the full spectrum of not only frequency and volume, but pitch, like the, the, the divide between the low notes and the high notes and all of these are so vast that it just feels universal in the same way that Debussy feels universal. And another great example of this, if I can, is Mountains, which is one of those tracks that like everybody talks about for a good reason, you know, like Mountains, of course, is, is what's accompanying the tidal waves when they're on that planet, when everything's falling to shit. It's an incredible moment of the film. Um, but what we get with mountains is a couple of things that go on to become Zimmer real hallmarks in this period, right? One is that metronomic clicking noise, that, that which was not a trope yet by this point and was not overused. And so it feels very fresh to me. But also we get the those humongous wailing brass notes and we get that, that wall of sound that he becomes so known for. And here it's used in such an emotional way that in choral voices that are almost shouting, it just feels very, it feels really, really powerful to me. And it captures that scope that we're talking about where the track starts very quietly. And then it just, before you know, it builds into this thing that feels like 
almost it feels it feels overwhelming. I mean, that's that's a word that we're going to use a lot tonight because it's it's the best word I have for this film that I love that I've only seen twice because I can't I like don't feel ready to watch it again, you know. But Mountains is a really great yeah. track too, I think. It is. I'm listening to it now. It's you know very low in, in my headphones, and yeah, and I think mountains, much like so many other of the tracks and the score in general, it's this slow build. It's just a slow build, and I mean that's what the film's also doing. But the music beautifully reflects the the film, what we're seeing, in a way that doesn't tell the story. I don't feel like the music's manipulating me. I feel like the music is moving me. As music should. I don't think music should manipulate us. It should cause us to think. It should cause us to feel, not manipulate us into feel. I think that there's two different things. But Mountains is a really amazing track as we're we're exploring with them. And we're, we're essentially on the ship with them and we're seeing sights we've never seen before. Um, and it's just a, a great, it's a great build. And it feels like that sonically, you know? And, and I think something that you're touching on that's important to talk about with this is why it feels so like ancient you know like why it feels like it's in our genetic memory and a big reason for that is those sustained pedal points that i was talking about those drone sounds which is like you know a lot of the earliest music that we wrote as humans had a drone accompaniment it was one note and then people would sing and harmonize over the top of that so we get this almost like sitting around a fire as you know neanderthals or something this feeling of like ancient of, of, of antiquity, right? Mm -hmm. But then over that, we're also getting very, con very conservative in some way uh, instrumentation. We're getting mostly real organic instruments, including this ancient organ, which is incredible. But also, you know, it's mo there's not very many synthesizers in this score. There's not a lot of digital sounds. It's a lot of, you know, emotionally organic and acoustic instruments. So even mm -hmm. as things are added to and they're coming in, when you listen to mountains, what you're hearing for the most part is violins and you're hearing horns and you're hearing human voices and you're hearing all of these breathing things that are happening, which are accompanying one of the most visually spectacular science fiction films I've ever seen in my life, which could have gotten away with being very futuristic sounding as well. And I think it would have felt appropriate. But what's great is that he uses all of these things that have been with us for since the beginning of our story as people and does it in a way that feels, you know, it's, it's interesting when you read some things like, you know, when you read the poetry of Sappho or something, right, who is this Greek poetess, it feels to me like it could have been written this morning. It feels completely contemporary. And part of that is because it's so simple because it's, it's, you know, a lot of her things are two or three lines long. There's something to be said for that, for like, for breaking things to the simplest components and allowing those components to sing honestly. And that I think really great you know, music gets at. And I think this is an example of it. And I think part of why it feels open-ended is be, and why it doesn't feel manipulative is because he's, but that's actually something interesting. So he said in interviews that this is one of the few times he's ever been emotionally vulnerable in a film, you know, like that, that he's felt personally, emotionally invested in it, which I'm sure is coming out of his parenthood story and writing this thing for his kids, you know, for his, I think his 16 year old son at the time. Yeah. It was his son. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that I think I think that shines through because if you're writing first person very emotionally about something, it's you're not telling anybody else how to feel about a story. You're telling them your story, right? So as many times as I've spoken with people who have had similar stories of trauma or similar stories of things that they've lived through, it never feels boring or repetitive to me, even if it hits similar beats because it's their personal story and I'm lucky enough to be listening to it. There's something about the score that feels to me like it's Zimmer's actual personal story, his personal connection, not to the 
movie, but to the deeper thoughts behind this movie that keep it from feeling manipulative. You know, there's a handful of moments that you could sort of look at as being conventionally manipulative. One of them is uh, in, in Where We're Going, which is one of the great tracks in the story. I mean, like, I, I'm not shitting on that because I love that track so much. But what Where We're Going does is it takes this this motive that we've had a few other times um, similar to Detach, which is also a great track that comes right before it. And that motive in previous tracks has gone F, B flat, G, G, A flat. So like, it's been minor, right? And then in where we're going, it's major. It goes, da, da, da. So that's something that like, you know, if you're trying to like do a conventional film score could be looked at as being emotionally manipulative because it's like, here's the thing we've seen a lot. Now the story's getting, getting resolution and we're making it major. So it feels sweet. But accompanying that is all those wispy wind noises again. It's this feeling of emptiness. So it's not one thing. And I think that gets at the heart of it. Other than the fact that it's his subjective score, his reality, there's something to be said for it's not just one utterance. He's saying a lot of things with each of these tracks. And I think that's part of why we keep listening to it, but also part of why it feels like it could tell the story of your grandparents or why it could tell the story of my own fatherhood experience, which is very hard to talk about in words, but with music and with other great pieces of music that I'm that I love, touches on something divine within that experience. And that's incredible. It is. And I, I think you're really hitting the nail on the head in terms of what story is being told. Zimmer's decided to tell the story of us. It's not yes, it's personal for him, but I think when it when it becomes personal for Zimmer, it becomes personal for us. He's speaking to his child. And we are people, I am someone's son, you are someone's son, you have your own children. Um, and he's speaking to us as we speak to others, you know? And so it just, and it's, it then, then it gets wider. It, it, it becomes something bigger than itself, where it's the story of humanity. And that's what's unfolding in Interstellar. That's what he's, that's what Cooper and Brand and, the other two people that, and unfortunately, Paris, Parrish, um, also Matt Damon's character. It's he, the story of humanity going further than we've ever gone before. Um, and it's terrifying. And how do we survive it? And uh, the music also really, one thing I, I would like to talk about briefly is in Interstellar, they're met with the reality of if you stay on this planet that long, too long, this is going to be this this long on earth. So it is incumbent upon you to do what you need to do and get out so you can get home to your kids. And so that's weighing on them the entire time. Certainly Cooper with two children who probably are going to be his age or maybe older by the time he gets back. Um, how do we get home? And the music is also like, the music also feels like this weight and it's beautiful and it's haunting and it's ephemeral and it's amazing, but it's like pressing down. You got to get home. You got to get home. How do you get home? You were there too long. Look at your daughter. She's almost 40 now. You got to get home. How do you like, and it's more and more and we're, we're all there with him. And we know that his kids are the most important thing. And the music is telling us what's the most important thing. And we're up against that. Oh my gosh. Like it's, I, again, I've never experienced anything as overwhelming and powerful as this score. Yeah, it is truly overwhelming. It really is. But I know we're saying that a lot in this episode, but it, but it's true. Um, you know, before we close out, there's another uh, another track that I think 
it deserves some some praise, which is No Time for Caution, which is the one that accompanied, I think it was in the trailer, and it became like a big marketing push for it. And it's become the one that most people talk about when they talk about the Interstellar soundtrack, I think because it just has such an iconic sound to it, right? It has that melody that we get in day one and the clicking. Um, but you also have just all these organs that are layered that are arpeggiating this huge E pedal point again. So you have like this, the huge rippling waves of sound, um, and the way that it builds and builds and builds and that melody, which is so memorable that we get very quietly early on in the movie by this point, you know, is just, is just shouting from the rafters. Sometimes I feel like Hans Zimmer can get in a rut where he sounds like himself too much. And and I, I find that, you know, with all of his films, even, you know, Dune, which I adore the soundtrack of, there's moments in it where I'm like, oh, I could kind of tell that he was, he knew something was going to work and that he was going to kind of use it. But Interstellar to me, it feels like it breaks the mold of that from my experience. Like it, it's, it feels like... Um, the aesthetic choices that he makes to make it sound the way that it does come purely from the story that he's telling instead of from knowing what will work for an audience. Mm-hmm. So even something like No Time for Caution, which is a crowd pleaser, feels to me still um, unique and special, you know? As we wrap this up, I also do want to mention again Day One Dark, which for me was the what pulled me into this score the most because it was it started off it's this actual build and you hear this sound like this i don't know what that sound is this is boom boom and it's building and it's then you hear a ticking and then you're like din, 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 and it gets louder and louder and voices and louder and louder and it's like your heart is being taken over and i think th- to your point and we just as we discussed zimmer approached this score as a father he didn't approach it as, oh, we're I'm hiring Zimmer to do this score, which he's done, and he's, you know, had some amazing scores, but he's also had a lot of passable scores. Like, oh, okay. Or he'll do that famous horn that he does in a lot of his movies, even as much as I love the score for Dune, which I'm sure we'll cover in this. Uh-huh. Um there's some uh, there, there's some of Zimmer in that that's like, yeah, I've heard this from him before. Whereas with Interstellar, this is not the Zimmer we've heard before. Um, and I haven't heard him again, even though, although I do think that the, the score for the, the art and soul of Dune is very, that's something we should also discuss because it's a very different Zimmer. For the, for it's the sketchbook. Very, yes. The Dune sketchbook. No, no, no. Not oh, the, the art and soul of Dune, the CD the for the soul of Dune. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's very atmospheric and yeah. ambient and like, it's like, it's like waves are washing over you with that score. I'm going to listen to it when we're done. Um, but, uh, Really, day one dark for me, like if you want to hear how emotional this film is without seeing the film, what this film has in store for you, listen to day one dark because that's that's the journey we're on. Totally. That's the journey I'm on at least. Totally. And and I think Detach is, is similar to that emotionally yes. for me. Just this like very, very deeply emotional expression. Christopher Nolan is interesting in that sometimes I think – so as, we, as you know and as we've talked about, I'm a really huge fan of most of his work. There's some things he's done like Tenet that I, I really feel are horrible. Um, and I think that when, when it feels horrible to me, it feels like he's sort of lost in his own – like he's like, fuck it. You don't need to hear dialogue. I'm going to create something beyond dialogue, you know? But like he doesn't. That's the thing is we're like, no, we need to know what's going on. And then he's like, well, I'll give you all the exposition you could ever want so you know absolutely everything that could possibly be derived from this time travel thing. And then it's like, I don't really want that. 
there's something about Christopher Nolan that gets in his own way, in my opinion, sometimes as brilliant as he is, you know, when you see something like the prestige, for example, like that, there's nothing getting in the way of Christopher Nolan in that movie. When you see the dark Knight, there's nothing getting in the way of Christopher Nolan. When you see the dark Knight rises, there are right to me when, when he, or Dunkirk, there's some things that he does that are like, they're all great for the most part, although I think Tenet is not great, but there's things holding them back sometimes. Mm -hmm. Interstellar has nothing holding it back. Interstellar is mm -hmm. like Christopher Nolan being completely honest with himself and his audience and what he wants to do, which is really saying a lot because at this point, he was just like really ascendant as one of the most popular and most successful living directors. I mean, he, he had had this like string of hits that was, you know, really like Steven Spielbergian, just this like everything that he did was gold. So it could have, he could have taken an easy way out. I remember in the lead up to Interstellar, all of the talk was about the science in it, right? About like how he was doing things at like Cal Poly with, you know, with physicists where they're trying to map out what the black hole is going to look like. And Matthew McConaughey having this, having this career resurgence and everybody was all excited to see him in this. And there, there was like, the, the talk about Interstellar was as this Hollywood science fiction piece. And then when, when we saw it, so many of us were like, oh my God, that story is not what I expected. That story felt very personal to me. And I think that, you know, is great filmmaking. And that's a testament to Christopher Nolan when he's at his best, which is really almost peerless. He's just an incredible filmmaker. And mm -hmm. likewise, Hans Zimmer, for all of the, you know, a, a recent soundtrack that he did that I think is great that nobody saw or listened to was Widows. I think that's a really, really good film and a really good soundtrack. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Check, check it out. It's, it's better than okay. you might've expected. Um, you know, his, uh, Dune was really good. Like he, he has, he's still putting out great work, but for me looking back, you know, on 30 or 40 years of his career at this point, Interstellar is his magnum opus. Interstellar is the thing that he did that felt like the most honest expression of what he can do with movie music. And what he can do with movie music is truly extraordinary. He can give us vocabularies to enjoy these films with that I, I couldn't imagine anybody else having scored this movie. Like it just sounds like Hans Zimmer at his best. And mm -hmm. for that, and for many other reasons, it really is one of my favorite film scores. I would agree. Mine as well. Well, I'd say that wraps our first episode of Sublime Noise. Thanks everyone that. for listening. It was um, even uh, like a relatively short frame rate. Look at that. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you and I can get to the heart of the matter pretty quickly, I think. Whereas with, when we're with other people, it's just, it takes... It's just a longer experience, which is great. Yeah. Um, but we're going to come back with more. There are so many scores that um, I want to talk about. I know you want to talk about. There's, and for me, music is a religious experience. I listen to music 24 hours a day, very loudly, if I'm home alone or very loudly in my car. So I can't wait. And like music scores, as much as movies saved me, music scores saved me. Um, even my relationship to Phantom of the Opera even though it's not a movie score, it's a musical score. Um, it, it saved me when I was abandoned in, in Missouri, I had a Walkman and two tapes, act one of Phantom and act two. And I listened to that for the four months I was down there on repeat, walking in the forest by myself. Um, which you is, should, you should tell so, Andrew Lloyd Webber that story. Maybe, maybe <laughs> you should. Um, he, would, he would love to hear that, you know? Yeah. Uh, so music is really important to me. These scores are really important to me. They're um, 
They're a part of my life as much as my friends are. I feel like scores are my friends. They help me get through life. So I'm excited to talk about more. Yeah, no, music music has been a centerpiece of my life and in my darkest moments as well as my happiest moments. And it's something that now more than ever, when music is something that uh, has been so threatened by COVID and the performance of music and the you know getting together communally to sing it and perform it together, it's, it's something that I, I miss deeply. So I'm really looking forward to this series as a way to sort of reconnect with movie music, which of course doesn't need to be performed out loud, although it can be, but also just with some of the music that means so much to me that I, I might have uh, lost touch with through the years. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Before we close tonight, I want to give a special shout out to uh, Sean... Shantanu Thakur, Shantanu Thakur, who is our newest patron as of this recording. We'll see. Maybe there's more before the next time we do this. But um, as of now, he just joined us, uh, I think, last night as we're recording this. So, so, so uh, Shantanu, I don't know why I'm having a hard time with your name. I, I apologize for that. And we thank you so much for coming on board. And for everybody else yes. who's supporting us, you are uh, the reason why we're doing this and, and why we hope to continue doing things like this for, for many, many years to come. So thank you all so much. Yes, thank you. If you would like to hear more of Sublime Noise, go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support or www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support and sign up starting at $4 a month.